Hello, and welcome back for the second episode of the American Orb Schulwerk Association podcast. I am Mandy Gunner, the chair of the Communications Committee. For this episode, we are sharing an interview of one of our members who received the Distinguished Service Award, or DSA for short. Um, this award is intended to recognize and honor those who have supported the mission of the American Orb Schulwerk Association at the national level and those who have contributed to the growth of Orb Schulwerk in the United States. In 2018, Mr. Steve Calantropio was awarded this award. Here is his interview. All right. Well, hello. Uh, this My name is Josh Southard, and I am one of the co-chairs for the Professional Development and Research Committee for the American Offshore Association. And we've been doing these interviews. Uh, today, we interview Steve Calantropio. He is a retired teacher in New Jersey. He taught for 31 years and most recently is a, a recipient of the Distinguished Service Award for AOSA. He was given that last year at the 50th in Cincinnati. So welcome, Steve. Thank you for doing this for us. Sure, Josh. My pleasure. Um, we're just going to start off uh, how I've been asking everybody, you know, we all have a story about how we found Orchestra work yeah. and how we came into yeah. the work. So can you talk a little bit about how you came into the show work? And yeah, sure, sure. Before I start, I mean, this interview just seems almost meaningless in the time that we're living through now. Uh, the COVID-19 virus, especially up here in New Jersey, is really rampant. And, you know, uh, we can do this, but all of our thoughts have been on that. And I want to wish everyone the best of luck with this and, and try and remember we're all in this together as an Orff family and as human beings. It's a very tough time. But uh, I'll try, start, try and stay focused on this. My mentors are my teachers, basically. I knew nothing about Orschel work. I didn't even know what the word was. I remember back in, uh, let, let me explain here, though, that I'm in my 16th year of retirement. I taught for 31 years and retired in 2004. So I'm well out of the actual teaching now. So my views represent a much broader kind of <laughs> what you arrive at as you get older and opinions about things. Uh, I don't mean to make the definitive statement on or for music education post-COVID-19. I'm just speaking my opinions and my impressions and ideas over the years that have happened. So please just take it as that. My mentors, of course, most importantly, were my level course teachers. But before that, I had really never even heard of Orfshore work. And I'm talking about the late 1960s when I was studying music education. I had a uh, music ed methods class that covered Orff, Kodai, and Dalcros in one period. Uh, these were all considered the kind of foreign methods, and uh, yeah, these are out there as well. And, uh, many years later, I looked back at that and said, well, what was the method we were going to were using? And there really was no standard American approach, and to some degree, that's still true. But I didn't have any experience with Schulwerk, didn't even know what it was, except that one class period, 1968. Uh, when I, 10 years later, when I finally started you know, to study the method, I, I worked with a man who most of you, probably all of you don't, they'd be hard pressed to find someone who remembers Larry Wheeler. Larry Wheeler taught at the Manhattan School of Music in a Dalcroze Orf Kodai joint program. He taught the Orf part of it. Uh, 
And the most impressive thing, and I, I'll never forget it, I was struggling to find something that worked for me. I was a trumpet player, a music, an instrumental teacher who basically had gotten himself into elementary music kind of through the side door because I didn't have a job and I had to make a, make a living. So I entered it and then realized how much I enjoyed it. But I knew I knew nothing about kids and music for the first three or four years. But in, intuitively, I was kind of doing the right things. I look back now and I see the way the kids responded, the way I responded. I was kind of doing, you know, intuitively what was the right thing, but kind of not knew anything. When I studied le uh, level one with Larry uh, Wheeler in the Hampton School of Music, here was this, oh, he must have been 65 at, at that time. Uh, just as joyful a character as you can meet. He would teach these lessons to our level one class and he would just be thrilled. He'd be so excited. I had never seen anything like this. Someone so excited about a little poem or the instruments playing a little accompaniment. That's actually what got me involved with this. Uh, I, I enjoyed the music and the, at that time, exotic sounds that I felt that were, were being created. I enjoyed the kids' games and uh, from there, uh, I took level two, uh, studied there with Brigitte Warner, who just on the opposite side of the coin was the most intense and uh, knowledgeable teacher I ever uh, pretty much met about the traditional ORF approach. Uh, my other teachers, uh, my mentors, uh, Jane Frazee, certainly, who I worked with at the ORF Institute. And for many years later, we co-taught level three. Uh, Richard Gill, God rest him, uh, who we lost a year and a half or so ago, was just the most brilliant and uh, stimulating process teacher who connected all this uh, work to, quote, real music, to Western music and, and other musics as well. Uh, when I studied at the Orff Institute, it was Barbara Hasselbach, uh, the director of the Institute at the time, and the staff there. And, you know, one of the more uh, most influential teachers and events for me was working with so many fine co-teachers in levels courses. I've taught probably 20 different university courses, extension courses, whatever, and the staffs there are always stimulating the conversation and watching them teach. Uh, I won't even name them all now, but they're really the people who influenced me to keep working and to, to do better with all this. So. You know, your level of course teachers are always special to you, aren't they, Josh? <laughs> and uh, Yes, they are, Steve. <laughs> uh, you know, they were the ones who really got me into this. There was no other stimulation. I never saw an ORF group or I was not trained that way myself as a child. But that was pretty much it for my mentors, the most important ones. I think. Um. Yeah, uh, yes, your special teachers, or your special teachers, your level of teachers are extremely special. Uh, yeah. So, yes, thank you. How would you define Orff's work, and what is your favorite aspect of it? Or do you have a favorite aspect? Yeah, yeah, this was a question, uh, Josh, you had sent me these questions in advance, so I could look them mm -hmm. over, and it's such a tough question to answer. <laughs> uh, how do you define any musical style, right? You sit down and you list what's in it, and you list what's not in it. And you can only define a musical style after it's been created, not before or as it's happening, but after there's a, there's a set of precedents in it. So uh, that is true of this uh, style of show work itself. Now there's the defining of the the, the parts of it, the, the 
tonalities, the the uh, use of uh, ostinato, the, all of those things that we know as part of it. And then there's the, there's the defining of the broader sense of what is Orschover philosophically, aesthetically, two different answers to that. I've never had any luck at coming up with a short answer for what is Orschover. I've had no luck at all. Every answer I begin to create myself or hear other people create gets involved because it has to talk about what's in it and what's not in it and the broader aspect of the aesthetics of, of it. And in doing that, it just doesn't distill into words. I do realize that my definition of it changes as I get older. I'm 70 years old now and have been involved with this for oh, about 50 years now and uh, now 45 years now and as, as such uh, my definition changes uh, as, as we're going along but it's an involved definition that would involve uh, uh, describing the elements, how they're used, describing the tools and materials, describing the process teaching aspect of it, and then describing the whole larger sense, which we pretty much can think of as elemental music, how that, where that music comes from, uh, how it's created. Not an easy question. We could spend a whole session on that. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, somewhere out there, I think I wrote an explanation about what offshore work is, but it's a long-winded explanation. I, I think they just kind of have to be. What's not acceptable for a teacher who's, who, when they're asked that question, is say, well, you've got to figure it out for yourself, like it's some kind of great mystery, you know, that kind of, uh, which I think it's just a dodge, you know, it's just a way to dodge a question. Yeah, sure, self-introspection about this is great, but sometimes you just need someone to stand and say, well, look at this, these are the parts of it, and this is how it works, this is the teaching aspect, this is the aesthetic and philosophical aspect, so not an easy question. Uh, did you ask the favorite aspect? Yeah, do you have one? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, what, what drew me to this uh, was the fact that uh, you don't, uh, uh, someone once said it to you, in, in, we play music, but in our show, we play with music. The fact that nothing is really fixed or rigid in the way of the materials, in the way you play or perform them, in the way you use them that everything is fluid, everything can be changed, everything can be adapted to the situations. And I don't mean this to, to be interpreted as everything, anything is off, certainly not the case. But the fact that given a, an example of music, this way of looking at it, this aspect says, what can you do with this? And here's where that term improvisation kind of overrides all of this. You have to be able to improvise with or play with the music as well as play the music and that, that's the aspect to me that's the most the best part of it and the part that i think that will lives on no matter what else we do that part of it is the most important well you talked about uh how you study or you taught at the institute um you've taught courses all over the country um do you have uh, reflecting back on your work to this point do you have any pivotal moments that you'd like to share uh, yeah, the, the most pivotal moment for me was not a moment, it was of the decision to go to the Orff Institute uh, and study there. And I don't mean, mean this to say that the Orff Institute was the ultimate in experiences. There were certainly many fine experiences there, but the decision to commit to it. And I was, I had taught about seven or eight years at that point, and I was having a lot of success with the kids. I had finished my levels, but 
I guess I was just looking for an adventure. I was single and young and had no money and had no home, no house or anything like that. I had no responsibility here. I saw this little one paragraph in the Orph Echo in 1981, the spring, uh, that they would be running this special course in English and just decided on the spot to, to go. I remember the day I said, I'm going to go to that. And I applied and got in. I gave up my apartment. My whole life stopped. And at that moment, I became pretty much committed to this stuff. And I, you know, used whatever little finances I had left to support my time over there. Uh, we, I did go from 1981 to 82 in a special course. Uh, uh, and that was pivotal because it, it was it marked a commitment to which I was not real famous for making commitments. But and, and I, I'll talk about, talk about this later about making a commitment to this rather than just kind of drifting through it. It was the first time that I really said I want to learn this, and that was it. That was 1981, and I know. Some of our viewers, if anyone does ever view this, probably weren't even born at that time. And in fact, you may not even have been born at that time. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, was a long time ago, but I'm just I look back at those times. Great so that time was the, the year-long course and not the one uh, week? Yeah, it wasn't a year at the time. It was, uh, I think, six months okay. from September to February. It was okay. not a year, but not a half a year. Yeah, this is called a special course in English, and for me that was a departure. Now, uh, from that class, oddly enough, there were quite a few well-known national and international presenters. It was just a, one of those really good classes that for some reason comes together. Yeah. I was very proud of, happy, still friends with many of the group. Excellent. Uh, what is your advice for those who are still young in their ORF short journey? Whether or not that they're a young teacher or a seasoned new teacher, into the, yeah, new into work. Hopefully, uh, they're new into it when they're young and uh, can avoid the eight or ten years of frustration trying to figure out what's the best way to to do things. But if not, the person starting on this journey goes through kind of the same set of experiences. I think they see, they know a little bit about it. They attend the workshop, uh, Saturday workshop, and they start to get interested. And that's all well and good. So my advice is to explore in the beginning and explore all the other methods, explore other methods as well. See if what Kodai holds for you or what Dalcros holds for, for you. Uh, look at them, see works. And when you commit, and if you do commit to Orf Short, then really commit to it. Make a real commitment to say, I'm going to learn this, right? I'm going to get three levels of training. I'm going to go to the local workshops and see what there is. I'm going to go to the national conference. Those are hard things, and unfortunately, going to come harder, I think, in the next years as we work through the changes coming from this whole disruption in our society because of the local situation. The situation now. Mm -hmm. uh, a commitment is the word, I think, you know, and to, to be a little bit single-minded about it when you do commit to it and do everything you can. Study with fine teachers. Ask. Ask around. Ask the people you know. Who's a good teacher? Who does it? Commit to going to a course. May, may not be around the corner. May not be local. You may have to save your money up and take one level every two years or something. Uh, but you go to the fine, finest teachers that you can find. Study the volumes and the original material carefully. Uh, and talk about it with your teachers uh, about what you're seeing there. That's the original proto materials. Uh, you kind of need to understand them first before you can 
uh, build on them. Uh, it's an exciting journey, and as you move through it, and it really is a journey, I still find myself on the end of that trip, kind of on kind of on the end of that journey for me. But there's always something new, and I I, I do say that to young people: explore the methods, make a commitment, get fine teachers, understand the materials, and uh, and of course employ the. In, employ the uh, techniques in your teaching, make it active and vital for yourself. Yeah. Orf Shork has that special something, that spark, the playfulness, and how has that been important to you, or how was that important to you in your classroom, and how do you incorporate that, how did you incorporate that into your teaching? Yeah, it's really pervasive. I mean, when you do this kind of stuff, it's there and everything. And again, it falls back on this idea that music is not fixed and rigid, movement and music, not fixed and rigid, but fluid and motion, changeable, plastic is one way to describe. It can be molded to whatever you need it to be. Again, this is not to say that everything becomes Rolf Schulwer, because that's not particularly true either. But when you do that, uh, and you're so involved with these things, I found for myself that the special something uh, has to do with uh, that improvisatory nature of working with the music. Now, you don't sit at a piano and struggle to play Rachmaninoff and finally play it and then improvise with it. I don't know anyone who's ever done that, or even Bach to the degree. Uh, certain music does not lend itself to this, but other music does lend itself to it. And when you become when that sense of what music can be or might be or should be uh, becomes ingrained in you, that's that kind of special moment where you realize, wait a minute, I, you know, I own the music and the music is with me and in me and uh, I can pretty much do what I want to do with it and this gives you the tools to do that. Again, it falls back, points to that word improvisation, which means uh, that nothing is really so fixed uh, or rigid that it can't be played with, and that's what we do. Uh, the special something to me uh, has been, it kept me a, a young, kept me in some ways part of my mind, still a child's mind, because I didn't have a lot of the materials that you use in the class. I didn't hear nursery rhymes or, or poems or kids' games or singing games or hand clapping. I didn't do any of that when I was young. Uh, my study of music was traditional uh, band music. I was a trumpet player and tended to be a trumpet performer in my career. But when I started saying these poems and reading the stories and singing the songs, I was just so captivated by it. I still am. I, one of my favorite things to do is just pull out a book of fairy tales and read them. And often my partner, Adele, likes me to read her fairy tales. <laughs> Here we are at our age, but yet there's something so charming and brings you back, make, keeps you a kid, makes you a kid again, makes you a child. And, and that's the best part of it, I think, for me, is a special part of it. One of my favorite stories that you told us uh, long ago when I was in your level three class, you had come up with these words for one of the Spielbook pieces um, that only you and your kids knew about, but it was oh. related to what another teacher yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I know the one. I have it in my book I've written, and I, I ask all of you to do the same. Do you find something funny or unique or different? Write it right in your book. I have it all yeah. written in my book with uh, your picture. And it's fun to have those little. Um, 
backstories with your kids that only you and your kids know about. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you see the progression of the show work in the next few decades? It's changed so much. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, an interesting question. And this, and I have to be honest here. And if I look back at my time in music education, I, I regret that so many times I was, wasn't brave enough to be honest. I didn't have the courage to sit and say what I didn't think was right or what I didn't think it was going in the right direction. And I regret that. Uh, now being out of it for you know a few years and being retired, I begin to seem more important to speak out when you see something that isn't right. I don't know if we're going to be around in decades. Certainly not decades is the way it's going. A, a decade from now, I look down and I see a continuous progression, a decline in our membership. We see declines in our enrollments in summer courses. Uh, we see declines in uh, attendance at the national conference. Declines in all the major metrics of of our organization uh, and the uh, uh, growth of orphan in the United States is declining. Now, how, how many years can it go before the decline becomes terminal uh, is what I'm afraid of. Why, why would it be declining? Uh, we're convinced, certainly, that this is the best thing since in the world. We're convinced of it. Uh, but I've made a little point of in, in the last probably five or six years of every time I run into someone who was involved in Orshulork and is no longer involved, I go with them a little bit and ask them, come on, tell me what it is. Why Why did you leave? Why did you not come back? Why did you leave the local chapter? Why don't you go to the conferences anymore? Most of the time, they, they won't answer honestly because they think that I'm so invested in it, they wouldn't dare tell me really why they don't go. But when they do, it's often the same thing. They feel like they're not part of the group in the beginning. And it's, it's a little closed group and they're not really being welcomed into the group. Now that's hard to take, you know, hard to hear for some people because I know they've worked hard to try and uh, send the message that yes, of course, you're welcome. But when I look at and see what's going on, I think often the uh, newcomer is not made welcome uh, into the group. We don't particularly go out of our way to make them comfortable. It's my, these are all my opinions, my observations again. And I think that's what's hurting us. It's what, what, why some of these uh, things are declining. Uh, no one wants to go to a place where they don't feel like they're part of what's going on. Our organization has become fixated on the uh, level course instructors, of which there are 200 approved level course instructors, approximately 200, and the people who present workshops and write books. This is all well and good. The majority of the effort of AOSA should be towards the new person who had just said, all right, I'll give a try here. I'll, I'll give this a try. These would be college students. They'd be teachers who have been frustrated in other work and have been brought in. All right. So I think in general, our organization has maybe dropped the ball a little bit in getting to uh, make those, get those people who are just involved, they should get the majority of the effort of this organization, not the 20 or 30 people who are out doing workshops. Uh, uh, and, I, and I did the same thing myself, and Josh, you're out doing them now too, but it, I needed to look, turn around and say, wait a minute, you know, where is this really going? And how am I bringing in new people? How are we making this comfortable? It's not a populist method. I mean, it just, it just isn't. 
I once tried to figure out about how many music teachers there were in America. It's very hard to do. All right, I came up with a hundred thousand as a round figure. All right, and we have maybe three thousand or sure AOSA members. Three percent—that's not a populist method for a for a methodology which whose point is that everyone can make music and everyone could do it. We aren't having much luck, and until we admit that. I can't see how this decline uh, is going to stop. It's just been going on for a long time. I was the education director for 11 years, and for 11 years, basically, we watched a slow deterioration of enrollments and uh, something very serious for everyone to think about. And particularly, I think the leadership and the uh, and the leadership. I mean, the people who are out there presenting this stuff, who are writing the books, you know. How are we going to bring in and make comfortable those people who are, bring, who are coming in, who are newcomers? They're the ones who deserve the effort, uh, the energy of the organization. Uh, and I know, like I said, it's hard to hear because many of us think that we've been doing that. Uh, but the fact is, uh, if you look at what's happening, it, it really isn't happening. Very important. I don't see, see us being around for decades at this rate of decline. We won't be around maybe another decade, but inevitably these things will falter. And hard to think of no way not having this organization for us who are so involved in it. But yeah. it's a reality that I think we need to face. Okay, well, our final question for today. Is there anything else that you'd like people to know about you, your philosophy, or your work? Oh, I don't know. I'm an old <laughs> chestnut now. You know, I started teaching in 1973. I mean, it's a long time ago. What I did back then is nice and it was successful. But for me to talk about uh, to talk to talk about you know what I did you know 30 years ago, it's really irrelevant now. I think uh, if you, I work ever worked with you as a teach in a teacher-student relationship, you kind of knew what I was about as far as uh, I insist on quality materials and a, a firm understanding of, of the sure work and what it's about and also what it's not about. I believe in quality and excellence uh, in all aspects of teaching. Uh, and uh, if you like I say, if you're in one of my class, I guess I hope you would have gotten that from the class. Uh, and I'll continue to be involved just in the periphery. Uh, I think as someone gets to the point I'm at, even though I feel vital and still young and still enough, uh, able enough to create and be creative, it's time to step out and let younger people, such as you, move in and take over these positions. Let's hear what they have to say. I don't enjoy the fact, I don't uh, feel comforted by the fact that we have people who just don't seem to be able to let go, but I, I think you do have to let go. And, Hopefully, let go when you're still in your pretty good shape. You know that feels good. Uh, no more, nothing more profound than that. Uh, anyone who wants to talk can email me. But uh, uh, that's pretty much my opinions on my work. Uh, if you want to know my work, I guess I have a couple of books out there and a few articles on, on online and things like that. So, all right. Well, thank okay. you, Steve, very much for taking your time. Uh, sure. To, to talk and we'll be uh we'll be in touch soon thank you very much all right now you take care and stay safe yeah. bye bye